Hello everybody, this is Dan Trotter. Pretty good Bible studies I will cover in this audio, Acts chapter 15, verses 22 through 35. The topic will be the carrying of the letter from the Jerusalem Council to the church at Antioch and from there to the Gentile believers. The context is this, in the first 21 verses of Acts 15, we saw the goings-on, the deliberations of the Jerusalem Council, at which it was decided that, no, the Judaizers were wrong. It does not take circumcision and keeping the law of Moses in order to get saved. The council also said there are four prohibitions that the Gentiles ought to stay away from to keeping the Jews from stumbling. So that's where we are. We go to Acts 15, verse 22. Then the apostles and the elders with the whole church decided to select men who were among them and to send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. Now, Paul and Barnabas had come down from Antioch. In fact, they got the Jerusalem Council kick-started when they came down complaining about the Judaizers that had come up from Jerusalem to Antioch. So let me start over again. Verse 22, Then the apostles and the elders with the whole church decided to select men who were among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. Judas called Bersabbas and Silas, both leading men among the brothers. These are leading men among the brothers at the church at Jerusalem. Judas called Bersabbas. We don't know too much about him except he was a prophet, as we'll see later on. The NIV study Bible speculates that he was the brother of Joseph called Bersabbas, also called Justice. Who was that? Well, in Acts 1, they had an election to replace Judas Iscariot as an apostle, and Joseph called Bersabbas, also called Justice, lost the election to Matthias. So he was the failed candidate for the apostle replacement, and he was also called Bersabbas, and so people speculate that therefore Judas was the brother of that Joseph. Well, that's nice. Speculation only. We don't know too much more about Judas called Bersabbath, but old Silas now, he was a leading man among the brothers at the Church of Jerusalem. Uh, he was a prophet like Judas Bersabbath. We know this from Acts 15, verse 32. Both Judas and Silas, who also prophets themselves, encouraged the brothers and strengthened them with a long message. I guess Judas has his claim to fame because long-winded pastors love to quote that verse in justification of their negligent practice of preaching everybody to death to sleep. Sil Silas was a Roman citizen in Acts 16, verse 37. Referring to Paul and Barnabas, we read this, but Paul said to them, they beat us in public without a trial, although we are Roman citizens. We are Roman citizens, Paul says that, so we, i.e. Paul and Silas. Silas, of course, went out with Paul on the second journey, which we'll take up in the next chapter. So Silas goes with Paul on the second journey. He's a prophet. He's a Roman citizen. He's the same Silvanus that is mentioned in Paul's epistles, as Jameson Fawcett Brown point out. Silas is the contracted form of the name Silvanus. He's mentioned seven times in the book of Acts. He's mentioned by Paul in the opening of three of Paul's letters to two of the churches in the New Testament. So Silas is a relatively prominent guy, unlike Judas called Bersabbath, who sort of disappears. That doesn't mean that Judas Bersabbas was not a prominent person. It's just that Luke doesn't write anything about him. So let's put it this way. We don't know too much about him. Now, notice that it was who decided to send out this these two men and this letter, these two men to carry the letter and the letter itself, the apostles and the elders with the whole church, whole as entire, whole as in from top to bottom, left to right, whole as including the common believers who were followers and not leaders. So you see consensual decision-making here in this very important council at Jerusalem. 
The NIV Study Bible points out there was unanimous agreement concerning the contents of the letter and also who was going to send the letter. So you see consensual decision-making all along. Compare this to, to the way we would do it today. Well, the elders have decided, or the pastor has decided. Consensus government governing is, the, is a great way to make very important decisions because people buy into them. And when they have an, when they have an, a unanimous decision presented to them, the legalists at Antioch are going to have to say, whoa, the whole church, not just the elders, not just the apostles, but the whole church has come against our position on legalism. Now notice Luke says here that Judas called for Sabbath and Silas were leading men among the brothers at Jerusalem, leading men. Does this mean that they were elders? Well, maybe so. It doesn't say. But I want to point out that there's an extreme that people who believe in consensus government can go to, and that is there's no leadership. No, you always have to have leadership. But the leaders, they lead, and they, and they present options, and they say this is what we ought to do, kind of like James at the Jerusalem Council. He said, in my judgment, we ought to do this. They present the, the options, and then the whole body ratifies those options. So the leaders have a point, it's a, a part to play in decision-making. So we don't need to go into extremes on this issue. Now, why was it important to send leading men to Antioch? Well, because there needed to be credible representatives coming from Jerusalem. Because if they weren't credible, the legalists could charge that Paul and Barnabas were giving a biased account of the council. Or if there were no representatives from Jerusalem at all, Paul and Barnabas could come back and say, well, the council decided that you got, you legalists are wrong. You need to shut up. And then they would say, well, are you really reporting the results of the council accurately? Well, if that happened, Paul and Barnabas could just look at Judas called Bersabbas and Silas and say, Judas, Silas, you tell them. You tell these legalists what the whole church in Jerusalem decided about your legalism. And of course, the Jerusalem church was all composed of Jews. And if the Jewish church would say that you don't need to keep the law to get saved, a fortiori, the Gentiles ought to not be able, not be forced to keep the law in order to get saved. So testimony from Jewish Christians like Judas and like Silas is very, very powerful up there amongst those Judaizers, those legalists in Antioch. We go now to Acts 15:23. They wrote this letter, that's the apostles, the elders, and the whole church wrote this letter to be delivered by them. To be delivered by whom? By Judas, Galber, Sabbath, and Silas. And here's the opening salutation from the apostles and the elders, your brothers. Now, I'm using the Holman Christian Study Bible here, and I don't like this translation, but this is the one I was using. So let me let me read how it reads: from the apostles and the elders, your brothers. The Greek, which I'm going to show you in a minute, says from the apostles and the elders and the brothers, which goes along with the idea with the verse we just read that the apostles, the elders, and the whole church, the brothers, made the decision, decided made the decisions to who they were going to send. And since they were the ones that made the decision, would it not make sense that the salutation of the letter would say? The apostles, the elders, and the brothers? Well, yes, it would. And yet the translation here fudges that. So by saying that it's the elders that it puts the brothers in opposition with elders, so it's the apostles and the elders who are your brothers. But that's not what it means. It, I just don't believe that. Not when we consider the context of what we just talked about. Verse 22, which says the apostles and the elders with the whole church in verse 22 and verse 23, it would make more sense that they would that the 
brethren at Jerusalem would just continue with the same idea. These three groups of people made the decision, so therefore these three groups of people are making the salutation from the apostles and the elders and the brothers. Now, to back me up on that, I have found several translations who translate it that way, including Young's Literal Translation. I'll start with Young's Literal Translation first. Acts 15.23, having written through their hand thus, here's the salutation coming up, coming up, the apostles and the elders and the brethren to those in Antioch and Syria. The KGV does it the same way, and they wrote letters by them after this manner, the apostles and elders and brethren. So the brethren, all the brethren are involved in that salutation. Acts 15.23, this is the Mace New Testament, whom they charged with this letter, the apostles, the presbyters, the elders, and the brethren split out as a separate group. It doesn't say the presbyters who were brethren. Acts 15.23, this is the Wesley New Testament, writing thus by their hand, the apostles and the elders and the brethren. And then we look at the Darby translation, Acts 15.23, having by their hand written thus, the apostles and the elders and the brethren. Three separate groups of people writing the letter. I think that's clear, especially when you go to the Greek, and the Greek says, hoi apostoloi, the apostles, kai hoi presbuteroi, and the elders, kai hoi adelphoi, and the brethren. Now, I'm not saying that the translation that says the apostles, comma, who are the brethren, is a wrong translation. It can be translated that way, but if you take it more sim simply and literally, you got kai kai, Hoy apostoloi, the apostles, kai, hoi presbyteroi, the elders, kai, and the brethren. Three different groups spread out in the Greek, and the Young's literal translation has it that way, the apostles and the elders and the brethren. And we've got the context of verse 22, who made the decision, the apostles and the elders and the brothers, and the brethren. And so that's who addressed, that's who sent this letter. Who was it sent to? To the brothers among the Gentiles in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia. So it was not just to the Gentiles of the church at Antioch. It was also spread around all through Syria, which was where Antioch was. Antioch was the capital of Syria. And Cilicia, which was just to the north and west, right around the northwestern corner of the Mediterranean Sea in Cilicia, where Tarsus was, Paul's home stomping grounds. So these Gentile churches got the Jerusalem letter, and I'm sure they passed it on to everybody. It was to the Gentiles, by the way, this verse says, to the brothers among the Gentiles. The letter was addressed to the Gentiles specifically, not to the Jews. Why? Well, the Jews didn't need the letter. They already knew not to do the four stipulations in that, in that letter. So we now go to Acts 15, verses 24 through 26. This is in the letter, the Jerusalem letter. The letter from the Jerusalem Council continues. Because we have heard that some, without our authorization, went out from us and troubled you with their words and unsettled your hearts. We have unanimously decided to select men, that would be Judas and Silas, and send them to you along with our dearly beloved Barnabas and Paul. Barnabas and Paul, of course, had come down from Antioch, and now they're returning to Antioch with two brothers from Jerusalem, Judas and Silas, along with our... We have decided to send them to you, send the select men to you, along with our dearly beloved Barnabas and Saul, who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, you notice they're being real nice to Barnabas and Paul. The whole point here is to heal the rift between the Gentile, predominantly Gentile church at Antioch and the Jewish church at Jerusalem. And so they say nice things about Barnabas and Paul. Hey, you know, you guys up, in, these guys up in Antioch, they've risked their lives 
That's, of course, referring to the first journey. Remember, they got kicked out of the synagogue in Iconium. They got stoned in Lystra, left for dead. Or at least Paul did. Left for dead. Dangerous journey they went on there. Notice that in the letter, the church at Jerusalem admits that these Judaizers who had come from Jerusalem up to Antioch and unsettled everybody, they had come without, well, they admit they came, but they pointed out that these legalists came without our authorization. Well, now there's a question here. Did they go out pretending to be authorized by the Jerusalem church, in which case they would be misrepresenting the Jerusalem church, which would be pretty nasty? Or did they just go out and say, hey, we're from Jerusalem and we're legalists and you've got to get circumcised? Well, I think the latter is, is the case. They didn't actually claim the Jerusalem church had sent them, but they were from the Jerusalem church as they preached their legalism. And I think that's the easiest way to say it, because if they went out deliberately misrepresenting themselves and saying and misrepresenting the Jerusalem church and saying the Jerusalem church sent them out, Adam Clark says, how can this be? They were so, quote, they were, quote, so conscientiously attached to the gospel that they risked their personal safety by professing it. You go up there and you say, I'm a, Jude a Judaizer. I'm, I believe you've got to be circumcised, but I want you to follow Jesus. Well, the real Judaizers, the Pharisees, are going to come after you. So they were risking things by saying that. So it's strange that if they were idealistic like that, and I think they were, it was strange that they would lie about who sent them up there to Antioch. So... Let's just assume that they came out, but the Jerusalem church is making it very clear. Yeah, they went out from us, but they we didn't tell them to do this. This is we do, we do not preach their legalism. We do not stand behind it. Now, I just finished talking about how consensus decisions are unanimous and how powerful those decisions are. Look in verse 25. In the letter, the Jerusalem church says, we have unanimously decided to select men. Unanimously, guys. This was not a majority vote. Note that the letter calls Barnabas and Paul dearly loved. I already mentioned that they that the letter had, had stated that Paul and Barnabas had risked their lives, but also the Jerusalem church calls Barnabas and Paul dearly loved. Again, they're trying to get comedy here, trying to get the two churches together, trying to heal the risk. Notice in the letter, Barnabas is put before Paul. Our dearly loved Barnabas and Paul. Now, everybody likes to get all excited about who's listed first. Paul or Barnabas, who's in charge? Well, I don't think anybody was in charge on the first journey. I think Paul probably talked more. In fact, in one place, I think it was Lystra. Yeah, it was Lystra. Barnabas was the, Paul was the main speaker, it said. That's why they figured out he was Hermes. They erroneously thought he was Hermes. But here, Barnabas is listed first. Well, why? Jameson Fawcett Brown speculates it's because of his former superior position in the Church of Jerusalem. Remember, Barnabas was well known in the Church of Jerusalem. When Paul first showed up from his conversion experience in, uh, on the way to Damascus, he shows up from Damascus and being in the Arabian Desert for two years. He shows up to Jerusalem. It was Barnabas who met Paul and introduced him to the apostles who didn't believe that Paul was really an apostle, was really a Christian. And then when the Hellenistic Jews got mad at Paul after about 15 days of preaching, Barnabas says, Paul, you got to get out of here. And so we assume it was Barnabas. It says the brothers, but probably Barnabas was involved in taking him off to Tarsus. But we do know that when it was time to get Paul and find him, he went from Jerusalem to Tarsus and then took him over to Antioch. And also one other event in Jerusalem that Barnabas was involved in was when the report came to the church of Jerusalem that evangelists who had been scattered because of the Stephen's persecution, they came from Cyprus and Cyrene, and they were preaching in the area, in, in uh, Lebanon, in, in Phoenicia, and in Syria. 
So the church that was in Jerusalem sent Barnabas to travel as far as Antioch to figure out what was going on, to find out the report about this Gentile, apparently Gentile conversions. That's in Acts 11.22. So Barnabas was a big deal at the church of Jerusalem, and that's probably why he was mentioned first. But it doesn't matter. Just like Apollo, just like Aquila and Priscilla. Sometimes Priscilla's listed first, and sometimes Aquila's listed first. Should we then make a doctrinal statement about their about the gender roles of those two, of husband and wife, just because one name is listed first. I know feminists would go on and on about Priscilla's listed first, Priscilla's listed first. And then one day I was wandering through the scripture and I found another passage where Aquila was listed first. I said, well, what's sauce for the goose is sauce for the gander. If you want to say that Priscilla is the leader because she's listed first here, well, I'm going to tell you that Aquila was the leader in that marriage because he's listed first here. All of which goes to show Better not make too much doctrine over what name is listed first. We now move to verses 27 and 28 in Acts 15. The letter continues. The letter from the Jerusalem council to the Gentiles in Syria in Antioch continues. Therefore, we, the Jerusalem church, have sent Judas and Silas, who will personally report the same things by word of mouth. What same things? The same things that are in the letter. And they'll tell you orally what we've written. For it was the Holy Spirit's decision and ours to put no greater burden on you than these necessary things. And, of course, the necessary things are the four prohibitions, the famous four prohibitions, which we're going to read in the next verse. Now, they sent Judas and Silas to orally back up that written letter because people could say, yeah, well, that's a letter, but who, what does that mean? When you got two live people there saying, yep, we all unanimously decided, legalists, please be quiet. Please quit, quit upsetting the church at Antioch. And not only that, the letter says it was the Holy Spirit's decision. Now, that was took some chutzpah. Not only was it our consensual unanimous decision that you legalists are wrong about requiring circumcision for salvation, it was the Holy Spirit's decision, too. The Holy Spirit's decision to say no burden on the Gentiles except four things to keep the Jews from stumbling. History proved the Jerusalem Council right. The middle wall of partition between the Jew and the Gentile was indeed broken down, as Paul says to his letter to the Ephesians. Oh, I'm sure they had trouble here and there. But basically it's broken down. We have a church now, not a Gentile church and not a Jewish church. Now there are some Messianic believers who sometimes make me wonder about that. But I try to give them the benefit of the doubt and say, ah, oh, this is just a cultural thing. Just like Pentecostals like and, and black churches here in the South and Pentecostal churches in the South, there's a certain style, a certain manner that goes with the cultural territory and it's not really doctrinal. I, I'm, a long, I'm, I'm willing to let these Jewish churches go along with that. But as soon as they start saying that we have a Gentile church and we have a Jewish church, they have re-erected the middle wall of partition between the Jew and the Gentiles. And so they better doggone be careful. Notice that... The letter said that those four stipulations that they needed, that the Gentiles needed to refrain from certain things, these were necessary things. Necessary. To, Adam Clark says that to show that however burdensome the Gentiles thought those four stipulations were, they were necessary. I hate to do this to you Gentiles, but you really need to do this. But at least it's not requiring you to get circumcised to get saved. Now there's a question whether the four stipulations were meant only to be temporary or permanent. Well, in favor of the proposition that the four stipulations were meant to be permanent, one of those stipulations said that, Gentiles, you are to abstain from fornication. And that's obviously permanent. That's a sexual thing that lasts forever. But on the other hand, in favor of the idea of the proposition that the four prohibitions were meant to be temporary, 
we can state this. The whole letter was a concession to Jewish sentiment at the time, and that Jewish sentiment is going to die out sooner or later. And the fornication thing is just an exception to the general rule of the other three examples, which were obviously aimed at Jewish feelings, keeping them from stumbling. And that feeling is going to disappear as time goes on. I mean, the average Jew today, if I ate bacon in front of an average Jew today, unless he's an Orthodox Jew, he's not going to care too much. We go to Acts 15:29. Here are the four stipulations. The letter continues. That you abstain from food, that you Gentiles abstain from food offered to idols, from blood. Abstain from food offered to idols, prohibition number one. Prohibition number two, abstain from blood. Prohibition number three, from eating anything that has been strangled. And number four, from sexual immorality. Immorality. You will do well if you keep yourselves from these things. Farewell. And so they sign off on the letter. Now, I've already talked about these in the previous audio, about these four prohibitions. The food offered to idols, uh, that would cause Jews to stumble because they would associate the sacrifice with the idolatry. The blood... Uh, and eating anything strangled is probably two th- two prohibitions pointing to the same idea. You don't eat blood because if you eat anything that's been strangled, the blood's still in the meat. And, of course, blood was considered especially important in the Levitical law because the life is in the blood. Therefore, sacrifices had to have blood in the sacrifices to God. And you start eating that, you're, you're trenching upon God's parameters, his boundaries, because he's using blood as a sacrifice, so don't eat it. That profanes it. And, of course, sexual immorality, that's obvious. Obviously, anybody but an American or a Western European secular progressive. We go to Acts 15.30. Then, being sent off, they, that's Judas and Silas, went down to Antioch. Remember, you always go down from Jerusalem. So they went down to Antioch. That's straight north up there. Antioch of Syria is right there on the 15 miles from the Mediterranean Sea on the, uh, on the northwestern corner of the Mediterranean Sea. And after gathering the assembly, that's Judas and Silas, they gathered the letter. Now I've got an interesting question here. Since the early church met in houses, and we know that beyond a shadow of, of a doubt, to a moral certitude, the early church did not meet in homes till around mid-4th century A.D., long after this, how did Judas and Silas gather the assembly? They didn't have church buildings. Where did they assemble? Did they assemble openly in a marketplace somewhere? Well, I don't know the answer to that. I have an idea, a speculation. Maybe the mother church at Antioch met in a large wealthy house, and so Judas and Silas just delivered the letter to the the mother church at Antioch, which was meeting in a house. And then that mother church, which had started little house churches all around, then passed the letter around to those house churches. I really think that's probably what happened. We don't know. I speculate. But, we, you know, we're so used to reading the Scripture from our own cultural mindset, we think, yeah, they gathered the assembly, all sat down in the pews, and, and Judas and Silas got up behind the podium, you know, with the two little throne chairs by, by the podium and got up and delivered the letter. No, they didn't have that back then. Verse 31, Acts 15, when they, that's Judas and Silas, read it, read the letter from the Jerusalem council, they, the brothers at Antioch, rejoiced because of its encouragement, because of the letter's encouragement. Now, why would that letter be encouraging? Well, freedom from the law cannot help but be encouraging. They don't have to be circumcised to get saved. Thank God we don't have to go around when we try to convert Gentiles. Well, I hate to tell you this. If you want to enjoy eternal life, you've got to become a Jewish person. You've got to keep the law. You've got to quit eating bacon. and You've got to get your foreskin cut off. That just makes evangelism a little harder. So they were free from that, so that would be encouraging. And also, that debilitating controversy was over the upsetness that was going on in Antioch between the legalists and Paul and Barnabas, that controversy's over now. In other words, the legalists were shut up. 
thank God. Acts 15:32. And by the way, this is strategic. This is one of the monumental milestones in Christian church history. The separation of Christianity from legalism, from Mosaic legalism. Verse 32, both Judas and Silas, those are the two that came up from Jerusalem, who were also prophets themselves, encouraged the brothers and strengthened them with a long message. Now we see prophets encouraging and strengthening people. One of the primary functions of prophets in the early church was to encourage and strengthen, says the NIV Study Bible, and we can back that up by quoting 1 Corinthians 14, 3. But the person who prophesies speaks to people for edification, edif for edification, encouragement, and consolation. Now, we often think of prophecy as somebody predicting something, like he's, a, like he's some kind of a, a charlatan magician at a, at a circus show. Hey, what's that you've got behind your ear? What's that in your pocketbook? No. Prophets are for edification, encouragement, and consolation. Of course, every now and then they might say something that only God could have told them. I don't deny that, of course. But the main purpose was to edify, strengthen, and encourage. Notice that they edified, strengthened, and encouraged them with a long message, which makes me think that prophecies are not necessarily short. I've heard some long ones before. I never remember. I remember with warm affection, I went to a meeting one time, and I didn't know that an old friend of mine was at the meeting, and he was ministering the meeting. He was a prophet. And I heard it, this this voice going on and on and on and on. I said, wow, boy, that's an encouraging message. And then I realized it was my friend. I said, well, darn, I didn't know you were a prophet to get up and do something like that. So, yeah, prophets can have long messages. I will say that it is amazing to me how the old commentators, I, I use old commentators, have pushed this idea that prophets and teachers are the same thing. I wonder if they got the idea from this verse right here, a long message. That sounds like a long teaching. I don't know where they got the idea from. I had a Ph.D. in theology. I had a discussion with him one time. I said, how can you say that prophets and teaching are the same thing? Because Paul splits out the gifts in 1 Corinthians 12 and 14. He gave some as prophets, he gave some as apostles, and he gave some as teachers. Well, prophets and teachers are listed out separately as separate gifts. They're obviously something different. Teaching, you have to prepare, you have to study. I'm not a prophet, I'm a teacher, so I have to sit there and study. Well, these prophets, although they need to read the Word, they need to, you know, they need to have the Word in them, but they don't, they sit this more spontaneous. Holy Spirit moves on them at a certain time, and they give the exhortation and the comfort. They're different ministries. I remember I was reading a, a English translation, excuse me, what was it? It was a Chinese translation, I, I think it was a Chinese translation where, the translators, these were old missionaries back in the early 20th century, Western missionaries, Protestant missionaries. They had the translation there, had prophets translated as teachers. And I was teaching from that, and, and somebody pointed that out to me. I said, no, wait a minute. No, 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 no. Prophets are not teachers. They're different. We go to verse 33 of Acts 15. After spending some time there, that's Judas and Silas, they were sent back in peace, sent back to Jerusalem in peace by the brothers to those who had sent them by the brothers at Antioch to those in Jerusalem who had sent them. Now note, who sent them back to Jerusalem? The brothers, not the apostles, not the elders, not Paul, not Barnabas, but the brothers, all of them. Again, this idea of consensus is everywhere. If you look for it in the book of Acts, they were sent back in peace. This indicates that the rift between the Antioch church and the church in Jerusalem had been healed and we notice that, that Judas and Silas spent some time there ministering to them, I'm sure, speaking 
and then they went back to Jerusalem. Now, we have a problem in the next verse, Acts 15:34. The King James leaves it in. The Holman Christian Study Bible and the NIV leave this verse out. I'm going to assume that the King James is wrong and that the Holman Christian Study Bible and the NIV and all and any, a lot of other tr- modern translations, I'm sure, leave this verse out. It says in Acts 15:34, notwithstanding it pleased Silas to abide there still. Well, that doesn't make any sense because they just sent Judas and Silas just were sent back to Jerusalem in verse 33, and so now we're supposed to read in verse 34, Silas stays there? It's a direct contradiction from the previous verse. So I think it's obvious the verse is not in there. Let me read from Adam Clark. This whole verse is warning in ABEG, talking about manuscripts. It's a warning in those four manuscripts, a great number besides, with the Syriac, Arabic, Coptic, Slavonic, Vulgate, and some of the fathers. They leave it out. It does not to appear have been originally in the text. This is Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown. The authorities against the insertion of this verse are strong. It may have been afterwards added to explain Acts 15.40. In Acts 15.40, it says Silas took off with Paul on the second journey, and they took off from Antioch. So the question is, well, if Silas had gone back down to Jerusalem, how did he end up back in Antioch taking off? Well, I think there's a simple solution for that. He went back to Jerusalem, and he went back to Antioch later on. That's the simplest answer. But if you put this verse in here, but Silas stayed behind, that directly contradicts the previous verse in which it says Silas went back to Jerusalem. And then you've got lousy manuscript evidence supporting it. Let me tell you something. The King James creates a lot of problems. A lot of times that translation, they did the best they could, but that's three or 400 years ago. And these people go around preaching King James only. I feel like I do when I hear a socialist talk about he's going to bring economic prosperity to the country. It's nonsense. No, no, that's not going to happen. King James every now and then. I use the King James every now and then. They've got good translations. I've just used it in this video, in this audio, about where it says the apostles and the brothers and the brothers, the apostles and the elders and the brothers sent out the Jerusalem letter. Well, the King James has a good translation there. So I'm not saying it's wrong all the time, but I'm saying it's got a lot of problems. In just a minute, we're going to look at a, a problem. They even mess up Barnabas' relation to John Mark because of a bad translation. But sometimes they have good translations. So we'll leave that verse out and go to verse 35. Paul also and Barnabas continued in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. Now we see here that Paul and Barnabas were close. They were close ever since Paul showed up in Jerusalem and went back to Tarsus. Barnabas went to Tarsus to get him. He took Paul to Antioch and they I don't think they established the church at Antioch, but they continued to build the church at Antioch. And now here we see them teaching and preaching. In our next audio, we're going to see them have a bodacious controversy, and they split, and they don't work together anymore, which is kind of sad. But, you know, hey, the apostles were inspired. They weren't perfect. And verse 35 says that many others also, besides Paul and Barnabas, were teaching and preaching the word of God. Those others who were teaching could refer to others coming up from Jerusalem, as John Gill says, or they could refer to others who were already at Antioch. We don't know. Notice it says that Paul and Barnabas were teaching and preaching. Now, that's there the words teach and preach are separated out. And I do not like the word preach in English. It is totally ambiguous. For example, if you say the pastor preached a good sermon. Well, he preached a sermon. That means he's teaching people who already believe. But if you say the evangelist preached the word of God, he's evangelizing unsaved people. So I don't ever use the word preach. If it's talking about delivering a message to believers, I say teach. If it's talking about delivering an evangelistic message to non-believers, I say evangelize. 
technically, because we've screwed the English up so bad, but technically the English word preach does not mean preach to a body of believers in a sermon. Well, they didn't have sermons in the New Testament for one thing, and preaching was done to the lost, not to the believers, so the word has gotten screwed up in our traditional English American church practice. So we're going to say teaching and evangelizing the Word of God or proclaiming the Word of God, something like that. I remember I did a Greek study on those words for preaching, and it's always heralding, evangelizing. I forgot the Greek word right now off the top of my head, but the idea was to spread the Word, not to teach believers who are already saved. Jameson, Foster, and Brown backs me up on this. They, They say that preaching was done to those without the church, contrasted with teaching to those within the church. Now, interestingly enough, Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown say that during this time that Paul and Barnabas were teaching in Antioch after the Jerusalem Council, this is when Peter came up from Jerusalem and started caving in to the legalist up there. Now, others don't say that. Others say this uh, this uh, unfortunate incident didn't happen before the second journey in our next chapter, Acts 16, but it happened after the second journey. So we don't know why. The unfortunate incident I'm referring to is in Galatians 2, 11 through 14, when Peter was come to Antioch and withstood him to the face, Paul says, because he was to be blamed. For before that, certain came from James, certain people came from James, that would be James the apostle in, in Jerusalem, and he, Peter, did eat with the Gentiles. But when they were come, these legalists, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing them that were of the circumcision. And the other Jews dissembled likewise with him, insomuch that Barnabas also was carried away with their dissimulation. Now here we have an incident where Paul is upset with Barnabas, as well as Peter, because they caved into the legalists. That might have had something, if this happened before the second journey, that might have been in addition to the problem with John Mark, is why Paul and Barnabas went their separate ways for the second journey. I don't know. This is speculation. Again, it all depends on the timing of Galatians 2. Paul continues, but when I saw that they walked not uprightly uprightly according to the truth of the gospel, I said unto Peter before them all, If thou, being a Jew, livest after the manner of Gentiles, and not as do the Jews, why compellest thou the Gentiles to live as do the Jews? I apologize for the King James English there. What Paul is saying, Peter, look, you say you're free from the law. You don't have to live like a Jew. But as soon as the legalists come, you you won't have anything to do with the Gentiles, which makes the Gentiles feel like, they're second-class citizens that they need to do something to get saved to be with the great apostle Peter, and you ought to be ashamed of yourself. And Barnabas has even run after you too. So if this happened right after the Jerusalem Council and before the second journey, then it would seem to me that Peter didn't really understand the decision of the Jerusalem Council, which is strange since he was so prominently involved in it, and he was prominently involved in preaching to the Gentiles. Remember his Acts 10 episode at the house of Cornelius in Caesarea? He had the vision with all the unclean animals let down on the sheet three times, and here he is, kowtowing to the legalists. I'm telling you, this this legalism problem is a huge problem in the early church. The NIV Study Bible says that this event of Peter dissembling before the Gentiles happened after the second journey, not before. So again, that's controversial. All right, here we'll leave our discussion of the letter that was sent out from the Jerusalem Council, and in our next audio... And the, at the end of Acts 15, verses 36 through 41, we will look at the unfortunate incident where Paul and Barnabas separate before Paul and Silas go on the second missionary journey. I hope you stay tuned for that audio, and I hope you enjoy this one. <laughs> 